Who was your favorite Disney princess? Moana. Why? She lives in Hawaii, and she um she's really brave, and she always wants to go on the ocean, but she can't. If you stayed until the credits in our most recent episode, you heard me shout out May Nagusky. For nearly a year, May was an intern here at Vermont Public, and she's been working diligently behind the scenes to help me launch this show. I can't say enough good things about her. She's smart, efficient, and wholeheartedly invested in the elevation of Black storytelling. May also has some skin in the game when it came to her interest in wanting to launch this show with me. Well, not her skin. How do you like being my sister? You're annoying. Be honest. You're annoying. (laughs) This is Zola Nagusky, May's eight-year-old adopted sister. Her birth mother wasn't able to take care of her, and May's dad and stepmom wanted to add another child to their family alongside their four kids. They went through years of background and house inspections and visits, and finally, Zola joined the family in November 2014, shortly after she was born. And Zola is biracial. I'm brown skin. I have curly hair. I have black eyes. I'm eight. And I'm really funny. May and the rest of the Naguskis are white. And could you describe what I look like for those who can't see me? You have blonde hair, you have long, long eyelashes, you never wear makeup, and you have blue eyes. Yeah. Despite May and Zola's difference in age and skin color, they have some big things in common. Mostly their parents and upbringing. Also, their love of listening to each other tell stories, playing hand games like slide or thumb war, love of delicious food, singing their hearts out to karaoke, and pulling pranks on their dad, to name a few. But it's what they see when they look in the mirror that can't be shared. For May, her blonde hair and blue eyes makes her the Eurocentric beauty standard that has shaped what we deem beautiful in America and much of the world. For Zola, it's a little more complicated. I'm just plugging my ears for a reason, because I like to. What's the reason? What? What's the reason? Because I want to. Why don't you want to hear why you're beautiful? Because it makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) When you compare yourself to your friends at school, that's how you feel, kind of? I feel bad, because I want the hair I that. Wait, what'd you say? I want the same hair as them. Welcome to Homegoings, Season 1, Episode 2. Today on the show, we're talking about beauty, the good. I absolutely love my hair. It definitely is what's recognizable about me. The heartbreaking. Why do you straighten it? As I look more beautiful. And the downright ugly. We are quite often the dirty secret. We are quite often the one that you don't bring home to grandma. We are quite often the ones that have to consistently fight for our own visibility, even within our own homes. This is Homegoings. Welcome home. 
I was like, you know, it's been 20 years since there was a Black woman that was Miss Vermont. I was like, wouldn't it be funny if it was me? This is Yamuna Turco, and it is her. As of April this year, she is the reigning Miss Vermont America, not to be confused with Miss Vermont USA, which I did confuse. She is also the first Black winner of this competition since 2003. And that's not all she's spearheading. I'm the first Miss Vermont to be a first-generation American. I'll take a beat here to tell you something I haven't shared widely in this one life of mine. I have done the pageant circuit. And at the time, the name of the game was definitely beauty. It was a straight up beauty pageant. I remember a lot of hairspray, fake tanner, even on me, fake tanner, baby oil slicked all over everything, don't ask, and round after round of surface level interviews where your job is to answer questions on behalf of the state you represent, not the individual you are. It appears some things have changed. My director did also say when I became Miss Vermont that we're in Vermont and I can be as controversial as I want because some of the things that I believe in and advocate for are seen as controversial and I don't think they are, so. The beauty part of the beauty pageant has also changed. The Miss Vermont competition is now called the Miss Vermont Scholarship Organization, with a tagline on their website that reads, where Vermont's female leaders come to grow. And Yamuna says what the participants do in the pageant has also changed. Well, almost. The talent category of the competition is still there. And the dresses. There's your onstage question, which is about your community service initiative. So my service initiative is child literacy, um, one book, one child. I focus on increasing access to books, especially diverse books and stories. Um, and then there's your talent, so I sing. Um, and then there's fitness, fitness replaced swimwear, and the emphasis is on modeling and confidence. And then there's evening gown, which is you guys wear a beautiful dress and walk around on stage. When I participated in the pageant, I was the only Black participant, but it seems who gets to be successful in the competition has also changed these days. It's the first time in Vermont history that there have been two Black women as the final two in the Miss Vermont competition. So it was me and Malia Smith who were the the top two. So either way, in her own words, either way we've won. Miss Vermont America may not be called a beauty pageant anymore, but Yamuna has achieved finding herself beautiful through the lens of this competition. Up until these changes, pageants were the quintessential beauty standard maker. It's hard to imagine some of that old way of thinking and judging aren't inherently embedded into the fabric of these competitions between women. The judges then rank from the top five. They rank who they think should be Miss Vermont ranked against what? Going in, I admittedly had, and I spoke to a couple of the judges about this. I asked when we, they said they had found the judges. I was like, do we have a diverse panel of judges? Because it's not a beauty pageant, but 
you cannot be a racist person. You can be anti-racist and still be in your mind, like unconsciously, I'm used to my beauty queens looking like this, even though it's not a beauty pageant. And so there was a diverse panel of judges, and I'm grateful for that. Yamuna is actually from New York originally, upstate in Essex County. As she says, she's first-generation American with a mother from South Africa and a father from Italy. She moved to Vermont when she began college at St. Michael's College and now resides in Colchester, Vermont. She says upstate had a little more diverse representation than Vermont. After all, the pageants she saw in New York included women from all over the state, including one of the most diverse cities on the planet, New York City. But her surroundings in Essex County didn't look too different to the Green Mountain State. She says in her elementary school, she was one of two students of color to attend the whole school. And when this is your story, you start to take a look around and realize the only thing different is you. Coming from where I'm from, it wouldn't be surprising to me if the girl who was my local competition holder or my county or my region was the Eurocentric beauty standard. What is the Eurocentric beauty standard to you? I think it's tall to medium height, fair skin, blue eyes, blonde hair, um, even a certain kind of nose, which sounds so strange, but like the straight, maybe even no bridge nose, very fair. I'm average height to a bit shorter. I currently have chin length, curly hair. I am fair, to be honest. I'm I'm lighter skinned, Um, but I'm not like like very, very light. Um, I've got brown eyes and freckles and, and I would definitely say being mixed race and light skin does come with privilege. And that's definitely something I've also thought about in my life. Ah, yes. Ye old P word. Privilege. One of my favorite nuanced words. And if you're wondering privilege, isn't that just a word used about white people to unpack the unconscious ability to be able to move through life without being racially profiled or unfairly stereotyped? Can black people even be privileged? It's a yes and situation. Let me explain. I am light-skinned and biracial like Yamuna. And I've had to learn my own lessons about privilege in my Black community the hard way. Once in college, I got the work-study gig a friend of mine wanted. She called me a tea server. I didn't get it, so I wasn't offended until she explained it to me. A tea server is a term that comes from slavery. If you were the son or daughter of the master, typically by way of them raping one of their slaves, you were lighter-skinned and got the privilege of serving tea in the house instead of out in the hot sun or the fields. My friend was trying to tell me I was acting advantageous and subconsciously privileged. Back to the yes and. In my journey toward understanding my own beauty, I've had to learn that as a light-skinned Black woman, there's an upside when it comes to my safety and access to success in this world. I am what some might call a comfortable Black person for white people. And also on the downside, I am a comfortable Black person for white people. That stuff can get pretty complicated. I was never afforded innocence. I felt always hypersexualized because because I was comfortable and even had like several 
boyfriends of mine that were white growing up in Vermont say things like, or you're really pretty for a black girl. Somewhere in that middle, you become this comfortable enough person where people can still hate you and want you. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it absolutely does. There's an expectation of me of how I will behave, how I will act, what I'll say, based on the fact that I am a lighter-skinned Black woman because of horrible negative stereotypes that exist, that I want to be sexualized, that I'm dressing because I want to be sexualized, because I want attention, because I want to be looked at. When And I don't, I don't like that I have to monitor the way I dress, the things I want to wear around people. No matter what you might, you're going to receive unwanted attention. But like that extra layer of like, I know this is, this is like a, you're fetishizing me at this point. I couldn't have said it better because here's the deal. Even if you've won the pageant, if you're, what was it? One drop of Negro blood, you are not having the white experience. I also have to check the fact that I do have privilege in the system, but that I can still be microaggressed against and people can still say things negative to me and look at me the wrong way and say things even directly to me. And they do. So what are, what are some of those things that have been said to you? I have had a couple people say, you're our Miss Vermont. How did that happen? Because of my service initiative and my service project, I work mostly with kids, and they're pretty great. They just like my hair. They often ask to touch it, but like if you're five, you don't know any better. And I will say that every single negative comment that I receive from an adult is absolutely made up for by the little girls that look like me, that come up to me when I'm in public, and are like, you look like me. And that will that carries me through I remember being younger and wanting to see someone like like me in that position. And if I can do that for even one little girl, then it makes a difference. When Yamuna competed for Miss Vermont for her talent showcase, she sang A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. How apt. I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, and just like the river I've been running ever since. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. My name is Kaya Morris. I am a resident of Esk Junction in Chittenden County. I am an artist, an author, a poet. I'm an MC, a host. I'm a leader. I'm a follower. I'm a mother. I am a sister. I'm a woman of the world. And I'm so honored to be in this space with you today, Myra. Kaya Morris is all the things she says she is, but she has left out more than a little. To quote my colleague Pete Hirschfeld, it's easier to list the things Kaya hasn't done. Kaya is a former Democratic member of the Vermont House of Representatives. She's an ambassador for Oxfam, who works to fight inequality, injustice, and poverty. She shepherded Vermont legislation to address medical fallout of industrial contamination of water in Bennington, Vermont. 
Basically, she's a freaking boss in some really beautiful ways. I see myself as radiantly beautiful. (laughs) I have um, medium dark complexion, so kind of your favorite chocolate bar, but a little bit like maybe like a little milk chocolatey. I have... um, I have sort of roundish eyes with that many people say are very bright and kind of look very friendly into you um, and into your face. I have a the Jones family nose. <laughs> What's the Jones family nose? <laughs> it's distinctive. The Jones family nose, which is a little it's a little round nose that's kind of very well proportioned, sort of in the center of my face. I have full lips. I have my hair um, in a style that I've I developed over the uh, pandemic, no less, with a side shave and purple um, lock extensions in them. So I feel like I know the answer to this, but do you think you're beautiful? Mm, I do. I do. And that's a, that was a later in life kind of um, acceptance. Now, I'm the first to let you know that all Black stories are not a monolith. Everyone is an individual. But if there's one thing in common, coming from the three Black people you've heard from today, or fourth, if you include me, it's this. Every person I've interviewed here today either grew up or is still growing up in a majority white environment. And for me, in my case, as some listeners may know, my younger years were my family integrating the violently all-white suburbs of Chicago into being the only faces that had melanin in them. And an environment where you are the only one of anything can't help but shape your sense of beauty. My sense of beauty was really rooted in a white sense of beauty, an acceptance that I did not receive, other than the little kid crushes you have, like when you're in the first grade before you're told, "Mm, maybe those aren't the ones, maybe those aren't the women that you should be pursuing or highlighting as being beautiful in your mind, creating a framework for beauty around and it wasn't until later in life, in my later teen years, removing, going back to the city, going back to Chicago, being in a black neighborhood, and seeing black beauty, and having others recognize black beauty as an everyday thing, rather than an anomaly or a, a, a special sort of treat, as I've been called <laughs> before, um, rather than being a novelty, being a normalcy. Having that was the beginning stages of me recognizing and understanding my own beauty for who I am and the way that I walk and present in the world. Interview done. Bye. Let's go home. (laughs) Spoiler alert. We are going to keep it going. I'm going to get out of the way for a moment and let her go off. How do you think white folks see you? It's a fascinating piece that in this particular phase of society, in this particular phase of human history, that we're at a point where people are able to better recognize, appreciate, and honor beauty that is not just rooted in a whiteness. Now, recognizing again that whiteness is not an actual legal, medical, (laughs) technical component of anyone's descriptors. But it is a societal lens that we use to determine who belongs and who does not belong. It's one that's been used and weaponized to kill blacks, to kill those who 
are not part of the white dominant culture as we understand it, right? And so that lens of whiteness is one that is upheld in a violent way. It is always the requirement that one must either conform to or um, that they must somehow perform in order to gain acceptance. And that that's the ubiquitous nature of a lens of whiteness in itself, where we're saying there is an other and then there is whiteness. And whiteness is the goal. Whiteness is the place of the seat of power. It is the place of historic power. It is the place of economic power. It is the place of political power. It is the place where voice is recognized. And so everyone in the American dream of this, you know, melting pot is always moving towards an arc of whiteness in order to gain acceptance. So who was considered white? Changed over time, as we know, right? Certain folks, Italians were not white, Germans were not white, Jewish were not white. There had to be literal conversations in the halls of Congress and in the congressional record to determine who's white so that they could get access to vote in the United States. It's something we constantly negotiate, but there's still a center to it. You're still on the outside trying to get in. And whomever holds the power to create that definition, whether it be in a community whether it be within an entire culture of individuals or a nation. Whomever holds that ability to dictate that narrative to you, that's where you find your goalposts for reaching what's considered to be the pinnacle of beauty. It's a, a pale skin that is often, while melanated as a popular item now, is still coming from a base of a lessening of melanin. It is a straightening of hair. It is a lightening of eyes. It is what we would consider more European f features. It's a thinness. It's a... Um, you see this within the fashion world. It's still, there's still an obsession with a prepubescent body, one that cannot be necessarily coded by race except for skin color. There is one that it is still based on um, a delicacy softness that's required to create a sort of passivity. It's meant to create a dependency, um, a vulnerability that has to be protected, right? And so being on the outside of that means none of those are afforded to you. It means none of those points of power. It means none of those points of acceptance. It means if you can, if you can perform that standard of beauty, then the world will be yours, although it's not. But for a few, which we do uphold and we look at. For me, it is a very, very painful place. Can, can we just talk real quick? 
woman to woman about these Brazilian butt lifts. I, I knew you were going to talk about the can, butt lifts. Can we just? Yeah, I mean. Can we just? Listen, I was I was in Miami not that long ago, and South Beach is, that is a, that is a whole mood. Never thought I'd be describing the Brazilian butt lift in my career. But just in case you're not familiar, here goes. <clears throat> the Brazilian butt lift, more correctly known as gluteal fat grafting, is a procedure in which a doctor, a plastic surgeon, transfers fat from your belly, hips, lower back, or thighs to your butt. Some people have what's called a skinny Brazilian butt lift because they don't have enough fat on their bodies. So the doctor may remove it from other areas of the body or have them gain weight before the procedure to avoid trying to use fat from another donor, which is not safe. Let's just say it's a procedure that has caused some controversy. And that's not lost on Kaya. I mean, Black women have some of the highest rates of eating disorders in this country right now. The levels of anorexia are enormous. Why do you and think we that have is? folks out there deliberately distorting their bodies to mimic blackness for appeal. And I am not saying that you cannot do modifications to your body. It's your body. You love it. You do it as you will. But it is really difficult and disgenuine in this moment. When we've been told that our thickness is a pathological thing, it is a high-risk thing, it's a comorbid thing that can kill us, it's been created as a negativism, as a diagnosis, and yet we are busy glorifying women who are spending thousands of dollars getting dangerous surgeries so that they can mimic our bodies without us gaining any of the power. I got issues with that. There is so much attached to beauty. It's not just something we think about on to whether or not um, you receive a societal acceptance. That beauty determines your movement within the workplace, your ability to connect with others for romantic love, as we consider it, partnership, relationship. That beauty can often be a barrier to community, friends, what your children do and don't get access to. Okay, here's the deal. For any of you who have brown and black children, you may be out there thinking, what is wrong with the world? How am I supposed to correct this? Is my child's perception of beauty just completely lost? Hold on now. Kaya has a secret to overcoming this self-loathing. The secret is to stop caring. I, I, I would almost say it's strategic in the sense that it's like you have to, <laughs> there becomes a point where you have to recognize for yourself that if it is not bringing you joy, then it is just causing you harm. And I can't be a party to that anymore. I can't be concerned with whether or not someone finds me beautiful. Because that over-concern, that over-anxiety, that insecurity was destroying me. Zola Nagaski, Yamuna Turco, Kaya Morris. And as promised, each of our episodes will end with a deep listen. Today, Kaya, who in addition to the many beautiful accomplishments that dot her resume, is also a poet. So, take a breath and let the listen in. 
This is Kaya Morris reading Black Beauty. It is rigid, unyielding, spire-like strictures that jut up violently from the brown earth's surface, algorithmically designed, attuned, and directed through market analysis and capitalistic intentions. See this monolith of beauty that demands a conformity? And when that conformity is not available, a performativity? See, blackness is not built on singularity. We live in pluralities, polyrhythms. Our DNA bears the complex blueprint for all of humanity with its lines and its curves, with its stops and its starts, none of which can be bound. There are no curves without our caresses. Skin that welcomes the sun. Eyes that are the actual windows to soul. No hips without our mighty birthing power. We have to be trained to hate our own mothers and to degrade her magnificence. To run from, to demonize and disregard what God made perfect It is the pursuit of power that is unworthy of the sun blocking our greatest natural blessings of black beauty. Thank you so much for listening to Homegoings, a righteous space for art and race. It's been a pleasure being here with you. And special thanks to Kelly Nagusky, Peter Hirschfeld, and Peter Engish. Also thanks to Elodie Reed, who is the graphic artist behind all of our Homegoings portraits. Elodie makes a new one for each episode, and if you haven't seen them yet, they are gorgeous. Check them out at homegoings.co. This episode was mixed, scored, and reported by me, Myra Flynn. I also compose the theme music and the music under our Deep Listen. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions and Jay Green. Brittany Patterson edits our show. James Stewart and May Nagusky contributed to so many things on the back end of making this show. And May, if you're listening, thank you deeply for all you've done for this show. I know all of Vermont Public will miss you 
and we wish you the very best in your next adventure. So what'd you think? We're an open book here. If you have any thoughts on the podcast, folks you think I should talk to, or subjects you feel super passionate about us covering, write me an email at hey at homegoings.co. While you're there, you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter and give us a follow on Instagram at wearehomegoings. See you in two weeks for another episode of Homegoings, storytelling with soul. As always, you are welcome here. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. You are beautiful. You are amazing. Absolutely amazing. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts.